Welcome to the Slow Quest podcast, where I, Bodhi, chat with creative people from the fantasy and TTRPG realms about their work, their games, their stuff, just anything really at all. Um, today I have with me Brian of Dungeons on a Dime. Um, Brian is a writer, game designer, streamer, all sorts. Um, did I did I miss anything, Brian? I feel like if you think that I could have been doing it, I probably was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm an oh, and this other thing is it feels like I'm master uh, jack of all trades, master of none. I'm an accountant, but I'm not a very good one. I'm a web designer, but not a very good one. I'm a streamer, but it's all just like tape and gum holding it together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh I think that's a better position to be in than just really, really good at one thing, especially these days, like on trying to make it like doing this stuff as a small business. It's it's good to have a lot of skills. I agree, but I would I still and this is <laughs> that kind of socialization from a young age. I would love to be really good at one thing. I'd love to have my Leonardo da Vinci moment and I don't know, chop my ear off for art or something. <laughs> or just good at everything. Like we could just be good at everything. That would be also mm. good. Oh yeah. Just like max out all those different talent trees and then yeah. bam, I can blacksmith, I can weave, I can grind up some herbs, one stop <laughs> shop. Yes. Well, welcome anyway. It's, it's nice to have you here. Hello, and it's good to be here. Um, so first of all, my my opening question that I, I usually try and open with is, when was the last time you played a tabletop role-playing game, and, and what happened? So I run a game every Wednesday uh, called Beast Fables, and it is serious fun. The kind of the, the catchphrase for it is, it's the tales of tiny beasts in a massive forest, sort of uh, like Red Wall and Watership Down vibes. I play with three friends and I run the game and it uses my system, Adventures on a Dime. In that session, uh, all of the animals retain their, or in this world, all the animals are the same size. So wolves are known as bee moths. They're huge, massive creatures in comparison to rats, bats, and toads and other little critters running around. And I like to role play all of these bee moths, these large animals as sort of like dragons in that sense of they're just so removed from the daily concerns of hedgehogs and mice and rabbits that they just wander around and they just they really don't think about other creatures and in this game uh a wolf uh, a wolf doing a sort of like ethnographic like saga book series has just decided to start doing some studies and writing on this uh little village and all of the animals in the village are bricking themselves because they're like, this wolf is going to eat us. It's been here for like a week. It's just sitting there. It's bigger than our windmills. What the heck is going on? And the players, uh, Ver Atlanta and uh, Fraser, have been trying to deal with this wolf. A bounty hunter has been sent to try and kill the wolf. And they don't want to kill the wolf, but equally they want the wolf to go away. And they've been trying to convince it that people have feelings, even if they're really small. <laughs> Do they know what the wolf is up to or is it a mystery to them as well? Well, they've been talking with the wolf little by little and kind of uncovering that uh, the wolf is a writer, the wolf is writing about sacrifice as a theme, that the wolf has come from the north, that culture far over the northern mountains is very different to the culture in the Bristly Woods, which is where the campaign is set. Um, 
And it's a mixture of like world building, very in-depth, like complex discussions, some emotional like connections and pleas. We've got Balthazar, who is this toad knight. He, he speaks like an English gentleman. And it's played by Ver. And honestly, I love how they play Balthazar because he's just so endearing and passionate but he's also like this tiny toad who in the scale of like wolves and hawks and bears is just so insignificant but he's having this really heartfelt conversation with this wolf whose name they don't know yet about sacrifice and what it is to make art and uh exist as an animal wow that sounds really good i mean i i mean all of it sounds great but especially the the scale differences because like even in um in those there are like other sort of settings mm. with animals like that like you said red wall but it never even occurred to me that yeah they're like the rabbits are the same size as the badgers almost and it's it's like very minute differences in size but that scale difference is massive like a a bear mm. to a mouse so that's why we i say we we built the world together uh me and my three players um and we've been kind of chipping in our own stuff but we decided very early on that we want it to be as if they were almost just those animals. So birds don't have those sort of like feather hands that you get in, say, cuter uh, games that aren't necessarily uh, different in like depth, but they're more cartoonish in their appeal and aesthetic. So in, in Beast Fables, the birds are literally just birds and all of the equipment they use is then scaled to birds. Um, and there's all sorts of other considerations that have been going on in the world building, like colorblindness, I found this out the other day, but the reason why birds can be so brightly colored is because most of the predators are actually colorblind. So having those bright colors isn't actually a deficit to their like survival. Um, and it made me think of like all these cool aspects in the world that birds would do and other creatures would do that some just would never consider. Like birds have secret brightly colored messages in the trees that they can see, but there are other animals that just don't perceive those colors. They just confuse them with the bark and the brown and the, the gray. Because a lot of animals have limited color blindness depending on uh, what they need to do to survive. So all these tiny little world building tidbits that just keep coming across. And then these wolves, just massive creatures. And this is really cool. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it's like animals with the kind of intelligence level of what like a humanoid in a normal fantasy realm is there like an animal equivalent in this or is it like if you know what i mean mm. so we decided early on that to make this to make the world work uh, and to have the conversations we wanted to do there had to be some distinguishing factor between like these massive bee moths and these larger predators and these smaller beasts in understanding uh, how they interact, why they want to eat each other, that sort of stuff, um, and the natural order, and also how you could have creatures that are more on a similar scale, so like wildcats and otters and pine martens and other things that are carnivorous but can also eat fish, uh, how they can live in a society with other beasts, and those other beasts, say like rabbits and rats, aren't immediately inherently afraid of them or like breaking down society. So we decided that canonically... Fish are not sentient. They don't think or feel they are equivalent to animals uh, as to we humans. That's not to reflect personal feelings. I believe that every animal has like emotions and thoughts and, and feelings, but uh, to make them more or less cannibalistic, uh, I feel like we were like fish don't have thoughts in that sense. 
So it's not like you're harvesting people and eating them. There's no soil and green going on there. They're just fish. The same for insects and bugs. They are, um, they're not sentient. They don't have those thoughts and they can't feel pain in that sense uh, in this world. Um, And there are still carnivorous animals. And because all of the animals are so used to like an immediacy of and an imminency of death, it changes how their interactions are with each other and how they approach those sorts of topics in society. So we, uh, one of the early world building things was that animals don't have, uh, they don't really have funerals. So they might have like a wake in the sense of uh, mourning the passing of a friend and celebrating their life, but they wouldn't actually like bury the body because it's so, so rare that you'd have a body left over to bury. Like if a hawk swoops down and takes your your rat friend away, then, well, they're gone. (laughs) There's no getting them back. That's interesting, yeah. We've got some interesting... Well, I've written some interesting dynamics that the players have yet to see. But, uh, for example, there's a a hawk who runs a guild of messengers. And that hawk uh, retired from, like, the hunter uh, lifestyle to run a guild of, of... like messages who are like cultists and and pigeons and stuff like that because they can trade the services of the messages they deliver and get all of their peons to deliver for fish and it's so much easier than actually hunting and killing people so <laughs> uh it's like this strange societal convenience um and everything's traded by a barter system so it's like favors for friends and then this sort of outside exterior fear of like well I kind of have to give the hawk a good deal because otherwise they'll just eat me and a lot of interesting stuff going on. Wow, that sounds awesome. And so the the Adventures on a Dime system is is that like a you'd say it's a like a high fantasy setting or is it not really specifically to any setting? So I saw a Twitter thread this is a couple of months ago that was like describe your game in the most boring way possible and I realized yeah. that Adventure in a Dime was born out of me applying for like a million jobs and then never getting like responses. Essentially, it's CV builder the game. You have three stats <laughs> that are, uh, uh, what are they? Vigor, willpower, and cunning to represent different approaches to resolving problems. And then you have jobs, which give you skills that you can use to apply to these checks to get advantage. Very, very simple. But because it's about jobs and the skills that you have, it's system neutral and genre neutral. Uh, you can play any kind of game with it because ultimately the the core mechanics are around how you phrase the resolution of a problem, whether you're taking a, a routine and measured response, which would be vigor, uh, that endurance aspect. If you're doing something manipulative, if you're being smart and incorporating a plan, that'd be cunning. And if you're being passionate and making an emotional connection, that's willpower. How you describe the resolution of an action goes to these three stats, and then you can have literally any job with any skill for anything. It's just up to you to invent it, and then find ways to apply those skills to these you know, fantasy or fake situations that you're playing through. So you can play literally any kind of game with it. What would be an example of a job and a skill, like out of curiosity? I have been working on for my Patreon just a list of uh, like jobs. I found this really cool PDF on Reddit of like 400 generic job titles that I thought was just epic. And I will try and find it. But like um, a job has uh, four different aspects to it. It's the title, which is just what the job is. 
Um, you have three skills, which are demonstratable, specific, active things you do in that job, which you apply to checks. You then have a trait, which is a more generic overall aspect you've taken on from the job, and a flaw, which is a negative aspect of the job that you have taken forward as well. It represents how not every job is perfect and how these experiences build on each other as opposed to just replacing one another. So for example, um, you, I might have the job of um, indie tabletop role-playing game maker. That's the job title. The three skills might be designing books, uh, writing convincing prose, and uh, selling at conventions, selling stock at conventions, right? Those are my three skills. My trait might be working late nights. I'm really good at, you know, pulling all-nighters and burning the midnight oil. And the flaw might be um, never play enough games. I I never have enough fun. I'm always working. I'm always like nose to the grindstone. So uh, yeah. those would be like the, the traits. If I'm applying them to checks, uh, I might be on a podcast with a cool friend and I might <laughs> say, oh, well, I'm going to tag the skill writing convincing prose to try and speak uh, emotionally and genuinely on this podcast because I'm used to writing in a measured sense. So I have an experience of putting my words together. Uh, I might say I can tag the trait as I did the other night, working late nights, because I recorded a podcast at like 10 o'clock at night. And that was uh, really fun. And I had a great time. And uh, that was really late for like that social engagement, but I was able to pull through because I'm used to it. And then if I might be out and about for my, the, the GM, the narrator of the story might tag my floor to give me disadvantage. So they might say, oh, you're at a party, but actually you're finding this really difficult because you're so used to working all the time. You've got like that background anxiety of, should I really be at this party or should I be like going back to work? Huh. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it sounds very applicable to whatever you need, like you said. I'm one of those people that unfortunately has not spread their wings far outside the the main not main, you can't even call them main, but like the popular systems. Mm. And just through, I'm going to say laziness and comfort in like, I find it really difficult to read books. So like once I figured out the rules, I was like, okay, I'm sticking to these. <laughs> but every time I hear more stuff, like like I played Tales from the Loop not that long ago and I was like, fuck, this is so cool. And hearing you talk about these rules, I'm like, oh, I need to, I need to expand and, just try some new games because it just it just sounds very I don't know just really a lot more creative I think is a good way the the thing that I take away from you describing that so I'll I'll speak of personal experience but I grew up on Dungeons and Dragons I grew up I started playing when I was 10 playing uh advanced Dungeons and Dragons like the original core rules because uh, it was a group of kids that we were all friends with and all our parents are friends and one of the parents was running the game and they had played Advanced Dungeons and Dragons when they were in like, uni and college and stuff. So they were then running it for us as the DM. And I grew up on that and then I completely skipped 3.5 and 4th edition. It went straight to 5th edition because uh, ultimately I played AD&D and then I got to uni and 5th edition came out. And I was like, right, this is probably the easiest way to introduce people to the game. But I was still used to that, like three massive books, like almost 900 pages of content to like digest, all that sort of stuff. And 
for the longest time, I thought, oh, fifth edition is super easy to like introduce people to. And it wasn't until I started playing little indie games that I realized there are some really cool ways of blending mechanics, that games can be so much faster and simpler, and that we have this concept of like role-playing games as like Dungeons and Dragons fighting monsters, but actually Dungeons and Dragons is like five or 10 different mini games in one large package. Whereas most of the time we only really want to play one of those games and we'll we'll go through the motions of those other nine mini games because we really like this one part of Dungeons and Dragons when you could just play an indie tabletop role-playing game and get that one aspect but all the time and scratch that itch and then go play a different game and a different game and a different game and tell the stories that you want to tell. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Um it's yeah, I think I think fifth edition is I think it did seem simple and easy to to learn and stuff when you are coming from a more complex system. So I think that that's sort of a thing that tricks you a bit. But um it's not until you bring a new person in and try and sort of start going over all the rules you realize, oh okay, I just remember a lot of these. There is actually quite a lot to it. The best example I've heard is Dungeons and Dragons is a lot like Monopoly in that everyone has little house rules and conveniences that they have had passed down to them from other dungeon masters. And in turn, they pass those down to other people. But when you get someone coming in brand new and they read the rules, they're like, how the heck does all of this work together? I don't know what's going on. It There's a, a big learning curve gap that we don't acknowledge because we've had the the benefit of having someone coach us through all of this. One of the motivations I had for writing my book in the red, like the whole Dungeons and Dime ethos in general, as well as Adventures on a Dime, is I wanted to make a book and a set of books that someone could pick up, just one, read it, and then run a game and get what role-playing games are. Because so often I have so many friends who are like, oh, I want to play Dungeons and Dragons, but I, I don't know where to start. And I don't have enough time to run like five games a week for the 30 people I know who want to try it, but don't know if it's for them. Um, and every time I start a game, I always have new people at my table because they want to try it. And I, I do my best to, to help out, but there's just not enough hours in the day to to coach everyone. So I wanted to make something that they could just pick up and do it themselves and really get the vibe of it. Oh, that's great. It seems like you really have achieved that, at least from, from what you've explained, it sounds like it anyway. Um, how did you end up as like a game designer? Like, did you, do you have a background in writing or anything? Like what's, I'm interested in your, your journey into, into this field. So there are so many elements that I feel contribute to me loving role-playing games, writing for role-playing games. And uh, I think what makes me good at them, I think I'll do a quick summary of everything. Uh, I've been playing since I was 10 and I, I'm happy to like disclose this anywhere. I'm autistic and I recognize that so many of my social skills and my ability to relate to other people, test out new uh, ways of engaging with people and forming those relationships, all of those skills were fermented in Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games. Um, as someone who's autistic, I and anyone who's autistic, there is a difficulty in interpreting uh, social cues. And so often you have to kind of learn them in the same way that someone would learn the moves in a video game. And then you practice them and then you get good at them. And you might not always necessarily know different ways of using them, but you try and add things to your tool belt. Uh, Role-playing games definitely helped teach me those tools 
at an early age and then helped develop me into the very social person I am today. With that in mind, I went into school and I never wanted to do illustration or art or writing necessarily. A lot of the, I just was unlucky to have a lot of teachers that didn't necessarily foster that creative talent in me. Um, I had one English teacher who I did a presentation that was funny one time and all he wanted me to do was comedy. I think it was, the presentation was on, a, uh, I think it was capitalism and capitalism and my little pony and something ridiculous like that. And ever since that like five minute presentation, he was like, every presentation you do has to be funny or you'll, I'll fail you. And it just turned me off of writing. But what I did like with anthropology, which was about looking at people, seeing how they work, seeing the relationships people have on like a one-to-one, on a group, and then on like a societal scale, and then digesting that. And I loved writing about that. And then I realized, oh, damn, that's world building. <laughs> um, and it quickly developed into trying to do all of these different skills that I thought were valid in a societal sense, like I did illustration at university because I thought, oh, well, illustrators can make money and they go do art and stuff like that. Um, Anthropologies can be really cool. It's about writing papers and it's respectable. Ultimately, every pursuit I've ever done has cycled back to, I like telling stories and I like role-playing games. And I think I started out as a designer with the admission that like, you know, all of this is just a means to an end of me doing role-playing games. It doesn't matter what I do, I would just do role-playing games. And it was accepting that and then writing them. And I've been happy ever since. That's great. Yeah, it's it's nice to come to that realization. I started writing, properly writing stuff, maybe like 2016. And that was just for friends. But I was like making fan content for 5th edition. And then by 2018, I was writing sort of system neutral, sort of fifth edition based uh, stuff. That's when Dungeons on a Dime started. And then 2019, I made the full leap to just system neutral, uh, explaining aspects of role play, running a game, and all of the skills that you need to do role play without the actual mechanics behind them that we don't really talk about a lot. A lot of uh, like entry level stuff I saw was like, ah, oh, so this is how you swing a sword and this is what a damage roll is and this is what stat modifiers are. But none of that actually includes discussions about say improv and why would you tell a story with someone and what is role play and if you're role playing as someone what are their motivations what do they actually want can you get into their headspace all of those other skills that are really vital both to to learn but also to uh practice at your table yeah um i think this leads well into your kickstarter currently running vice and virtue um what is it So Vice and Virtue is what I would describe as a tabletop subsystem. It is a a set of mechanics as well as uh, advice about storytelling that can work with any role-playing game. But it is a system. But it's just... (laughs) It's like system neutral, but it's also its own thing. It's really cool. Uh, Is it a bit like a... You'd almost do it before a game? Like, it's not sort of running simultaneously, or is that wrong? I would describe it as vice and virtue as a set of processes that you run alongside your game. It adds about 15, 20 minutes of extra gameplay onto a regular like two or three hour session. And it helps everybody get much more engaged into the storytelling through a lot of different fun mechanics. Uh, I suck at explaining what it is 
on the spot because it's so comprehensive and so cool. I'm really proud of the rules. So I made the I made the video. So if you want like a succinct two minute explanation, I said just go to the Kickstarter page. But if you want to listen to me fumble, keep on listening. Uh, Vice and Virtue is a subsystem that brings moral role play into your story. It is based on this aesthetic vibe of fortune telling where the GM prepares what are called spreads. There are a set of scenarios that could happen and each uh, situation in the spread has a fortune, a cryptic clue that they tell to the players. Uh, the players choose these cryptic clues to direct the scenes and discuss which clues or which fortunes they think are most interesting. This gets the players involved in the story. They're actively choosing the direction of where they want to go. And it also gives the uh, narrator, the GM, the chance to know what the players are interested in and amp those uh, aspects up. Uh, it also leaves the GM with a set scenario that has got some interesting uh, bits of building and uh tools they can use to then continue the scene without leaving them completely stranded and not knowing what's going to happen next um, when the players want to go in a, a new direction. The, the game itself is really cool and very simple. It's only like three or four, four or five like pages of, of text. Um, you can get the rules for free so you can see how it all works and the nitty gritty of it. Um, the game is played in scenes, so you, you start a scene by laying out a spread, the players choose a fortune, um, they don't quite know what's going to happen next, but they have a hint from the fortune, you play through the scene, at the end of the scene you have a reflection where you debrief from that session, you talk about the actions of the players, and you assign bearings, bearings being vice, balance, or neutral, uh, explaining how the, the characters been approaching resolving conflict in the story. Uh, the characters then gain a little boon, um, from the bearing that they have to help reinforce that form of conflict resolution and to make the players more effective in that style of role play. And it's all about uh, being in the moment, uh, choosing a fortune, getting excited, and then coming out of that, debriefing, and understanding what direction you want to take your character in as a player and as a, as a narrator, having easier, faster prep for your sessions so that you're not feeling like you have to create an entire world only to show off like one wooden path and a building and the rest is like scrapped because the, well, the players didn't see it, it doesn't matter so such a common a common occurrence um and so would you say like a and the kind of moment that it would pop up let's say fifth edition because that's what i know let's say like would it be like the end of the session the the group is sitting down by the fire and then you would engage this sort of subsystem is that sort of an appropriate, like, is that correct? So if we're going to do fifth edition as your, as your, as your network, uh, it's a, it happens whenever is natural out of the game. Uh, and it helps you balance the, how would I say it? The, the pacing of the story you're telling with your players. So you don't have to have in game, the, the characters sit down around a fire to have this discussion happen because it's between the players, not the characters. Um, so let's have a, a typical example of uh, a bearing. So the, uh, you have a party and they are traveling forward to the the keep of the count, the count's keep, and uh, they are moving through a forest. So the GM is like, oh, damn, I feel like I want to stretch this out. I want the to have some things happen before they get to the castle. Let me look at my spreads. Oh, I've got a spread here that says forest travel. Very simple. It's a 
seven different themed encounters um, around the different vices and virtues uh, for the forest. I drop, shuffle my cards, I draw out, I just lay the spread out, and I say, ah, oh, here are your three fortunes, let the players choose. The players choose the fortune they might like the most, and then you continue play. Um, the GM then has this little scenario of like a forest encounter. Maybe there's like a cart that's stuck in the woods and there's an interesting twist behind it. Maybe the the, the people drawing the cart are actually like uh, cannibals and they're like, oh, we're trying to get our produce to market. And the, the player's like, oh, let's help them out and be lovely. And they actually turn out helping something really horrible happen. Or maybe it's totally innocuous and the players are super suspicious for no reason and or something happens. Um they, they go through the scenario, they play through it, they engage, and then at the end of the scenario, so it might be that they're leaving the market and going on towards the, the Count's castle, having helped these people. Uh, it's the end of the session, and the GM says, right, we're going to reflect. And you have a quick like five-minute discussion about what the players did, what the results were, how they acted, and um, how they think they acted versus what the actual consequences of their actions were. And then they assign boons and then you can continue play or that might be like the end of the session. So you pick up play the next time round um, and, you know, maybe like session two, they're outside the Count's Castle and there's another spread uh, into the dungeon and they lay out three more fortunes and the players get to choose again. And it helps give the your sessions like a really good narrative heartbeat where everyone's on the same page about like where the the pressure of the story is where like the rise and fall is. And it also helps people debrief afterwards by going like, right, this is the end of the session. We're going to talk about what happened. We're going to feel really good. And it gives a really natural pause for people to raise and say, oh, I really like this thing that we did. That was really fun. I hope we can do more of that. Or this thing made me uncomfortable. Maybe we could avoid that sort of thing in the future. And it helps all the players, uh, including the, the GM, just be in communication with each other. Yeah, I think it's important that, and it's easy to not do that <laughs> in a regular game like so it's really nice to bring it up um and then the boons are like um are they specified in vice and virtue or is that i guess it depends on your system right so part of it being system neutral is i have some recommended boons but ultimately i advise uh players to first of all the whole group has to agree what the boons will be before they start playing so that everyone's on the same page um and I also recommend that you change the boons and you try new things out. So there are three uh, bearings, directions, and ways of resolving conflict that people can have. They are vice, which is being in the moment, being uh, headstrong, seeking immediate resolution. There's balance, which is thinking about uh, weighing your options and considering the outcome of different actions. And there's virtue, which is keeping a cool head, taking a step back and seeing the bigger picture. So the different boons for those are with vice, you get to automatically uh, succeed on a check um, that you're going to do because it's system neutral. I don't really specify much more than that. So it might be like your, your attack automatically hits or if it was fifth edition, you might say you automatically take 10 on a roll instead of whatever you rolled or you get advantage or whatever. Um, with balance, you get to ask the narrator, the player gets to ask the narrator a question out of character about the consequences of an action and they get a full and honest answer. It helps keep the, the dialogue about the story and its direction open and it helps the players understand and have that direct conversation about like, if we do this, is this going to end badly? Okay, it's going to end badly. We're going to do it anyway because that sounds fun. Like it, it helps everyone stay on the same page. And then 
virtue is the opposite of vice. So as opposed to having an automatic success for yourself, you can have an automatic success for someone else or have an automatic um, failure for someone else. So it might be like uh, like the like a, a demon comes out of the woods and attacks someone. You say, oh, that attack fails because I've been training with this person. We've been helping each other out and they have this like practice dodge they do out of the way. And so like mechanically, the demon failed their attack. But in the story, it's because everyone's been working together and encouraging each other. I hope it doesn't sound too complicated. You should honestly, anyone should just go to the Kickstarter and watch the video because uh, it'll be... It's like two minutes. It's so succinct. I'm really happy with how I described it there and here. I'm just like, (laughs) no, no. Yeah, for sure. Um, And do you have an address that people can go to easily? So if you go to, if you go to Linktree, so that's linktr.ee forward slash DOAD, that's uh, my really quick link to see all the stuff I do and the the Kickstarter's on there, my website, the Adventures on a Dime rules, everything's really uh, accessible from there. So it's linktr.ee forward slash D-O-A-D. Or if you just look up Vice and Virtue on Kickstarter, you'll find it as well. Yep. And it'll be in the show notes too. So if you're listening to this, it should be somewhere in the show notes. If you can find that in your app or wherever. Um, Cool. I think it's about time we make a thing, if, if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's make a thing. I love making a thing. Rolly, rolly, roll. 52 is the first, mm-hmm. which, oh, and we're making an item. And mm. the first prompt is harm, Ooh. which is like a, I don't know, that's feels weapony, but we'll see what the next one is. And four, harm and vacious. Vacious? Vacuous. Oh, vacuous. Vacuous, sorry. Which is like... Well, vacuum, empty, empty-headed. Yeah. Vacuous makes me think of like the inside of a bag of holding type mm. thing. Um, so harm and vacuous and we're making an item. And um, yeah, does anything come immediately to mind? So I love a good narrative like catalyst. So when you immediately mm. said an item that causes harm... I wasn't thinking weaponry. I was thinking something that, like, emotionally hurts someone or starts conflict, um, mm. either like intentionally or unintentionally. So maybe it's like uh, a cursed mirror that, when you look at it, it just in- it inflates your your ego, or it very subtly just makes you feel awful about yourself, um, and it causes harm it starts conflict by just like lowering or raising your uh your self-esteem to the point where either you feel like you're just a constant drain on the people around you but you can't stop looking or you feel like you're the only one carrying it you're like oh, I'm, I'm the biggest cheese wheel that's ever existed um and <laughs> your your ego just like blows out proportion and it causes you to drive the people around you away um and i think it'd be interesting if like this might not be something the party has. It might be something that is causing a conflict, like say uh, the like the fairies have left this mirror and the milkmaid has picked it up, and uh, they've been looking into this mirror slowly and slowly, and it's causing them 
where previously they were really like a good pillar of the community, it's really just affected yeah. how they interact with the people around them. What did okay. you think of? And does no, I mean, yeah, I feel like you're what I like to go in the direction of the guest. Um, <laughs> and I, I like that. I like the direction that you're headed. Um, a question I have would be if the is it actually it's absorbing something from you, does that result in anything for the mirror? Like, is there a point where it's like I, it's got enough energy of some sort that something happens or is it just a forever feeding? Like, I feel like it depends on who who created the mirror and what their motivation for making such a horrible thing would be. I feel like mm. if it was fairies uh, or like the Fae, commonly in like European folklore, it's always they're there just to make mischief. And it's almost like this really narcissistic bullying aspect and schadenfreude of just, I want to see someone suffer. And so I've made this very small, light, insidious thing that's hard to find and hard to understand. And uh, like if you if it was like Dungeons Dragons and you cast a tech magic, it wouldn't ping. It's so gentle and innocuous. Um, yeah. Like the motivation behind that is it's never going to be full. All it's going to do is it's just going to make you feel slightly worse every single time you look at it. Um, and equally, uh, if it was made by, say, like a wizard, then it might be like a political tool. So it might not be sent randomly into the forest to whoever wants to get hold of it. Instead, it could be uh, sent to like the region and they are finding that all of their ability to like negotiate and manage and you know do court and things like that are just slowly diminishing because there's this sense of confidence they needed to run the realm is now just completely falling apart so i think it would really depend on on who who made the mirror as to whether it fulfills a purpose or if it's gonna like if it absorbs enough ego that it spawns like maybe a shadow that then goes out and does something or if it's uh maybe it's stealing this sense of self-confidence and giving it to someone that's something that's quite fun is this taking kind of vague tr personality traits and aspects of like our thoughts and then turning them into like a physical thing like it's literally stealing your your happiness and your confidence and it's locking in a box and until you open that box you just can't be happy again i mean i kind of liked the i liked the idea of the fae and without a specific purpose but it's fun to think of the idea that although it isn't like they're not like the fae aren't specifically pulling all that energy to themselves it has to go somewhere so maybe it does just get stored within the mirror so if it does get destroyed it releases back out Oh, oh! If we're talking curses and we're talking things that do harm, because when you're when you're going to do harm and you're going to create this conflict, it's never there's never an easy solution. I feel like if fairies are cruel in an inhuman way, um, my thought is that the mirror starts as a simple mirror and it absorbs your confidence, and the the mirror as it gains in power, it makes you look or makes whoever looks at the mirror. Uh, it makes them look more beautiful, more confident, more impressive. And then when they look at any other mirror, obviously they just see themselves, but this sort of inf inf inflated ego means that when they look in other mirrors, like, oh, I'm ugly, I'm horrible, uh, I don't stand up straight, I, I'm dumpy, like all these negative thoughts they have about themselves. And so mm. they go and look at this mirror more and more, and it just takes more and more of their joy, um, and it becomes more and more 
visible. And if you smash yeah. the mirror, then it obviously will stop doing it. It will break, but it won't return that joy. You have to do some kind of ritual or some kind of process to take the joy back from the mirror. And that's where that element of cruelty comes through from the Fae, because they want people to have their joy stolen by it. And then to watch them in anger, like smash the mirror and realize that that joy's gone. They've broken it and it's never going to yeah. come back. I like that, yeah. And then that that process of making yourself more beautiful as you go, as you feel worse generally, it's like this, it just keeps pulling you back into that specific thing to feed it more and more. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's good. And there's um, so many ways you could okay. describe it subtly. Like if you had, like if you look at it, it seems like, oh, the, it's just catching the light just right. Or maybe like if it's a really misty, muggy day, then like, oh, there's just the right amount of like, uh, condensation of the mirror that it looks kind of spectral and you just look really good when you look in the mirror and just yeah. feel beautiful and it's this in that kind of vacuous term it's kind of vapid and vain and it's never going to fulfill you to look at this and be like oh, I look good <laughs> it's never actually going to feed you anything because the minute you look away you suddenly feel worse it's wonderful it's like McDonald's mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I like it I think this it's 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 use this creation i think it just spawns immediately like a great little like adventure or like even just a subtle thing that could be happening in a town like as you said someone maybe someone slightly important to the town has just become like dwindling slowly further and further away mm -hmm. um and then you could just run like a little a little quest around it or it could just be an interesting occurrence happening in the town as they pass through i think it's really it's really fun I think if you're running those longer campaigns, this is definitely an item you give to an NPC who the characters interact with on a regular basis that's slow and steady. And they notice over time, if they're careful, if the players are aware of these things, they notice that this character is becoming more and more glum when they're interacting with the players and they're becoming more and more reclusive. Or if they're, say, like uh, a wizard, then they're not offering to work or enchant or do these spells to the players as much because they're just like, I just feel really tired. And there might be like a, a lot of these real conversations we have about mental health where like, they're like, oh, can we get you a, a potion? Can we get you food? Can we, do you need money? Can we do something? And the person has this, has no idea of like what is actually causing them to feel this bad. Um, and just like with mental health, you can't just do something and make it better. Ultimately it requires slow, patient support from willing friends. I like that. Uh, and okay. And so I, I would like there to be a name could you what like a name for the item just for the sake of rounding it all off and putting a stamp mm. on it well like you said empty and vapid a vapid like mcdonald's so maybe it's like the mirror of mcdone and mcdone is the fae who made it and maybe uh maybe the the subtle sign the fae are watching because i love fae appearing and it's like the 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 live audience in a in a talk show. That's what I imagine the Fae are like. Maybe if you look in the mirror, anytime you see a physical depiction of like a painting or there's like a, a, a statue, it looks like it's looking at you through the mirror. And that's sort of the inference, if anyone catches that, that something is watching and enjoying what's happening with the mirror. So they're kind of almost watching you through the mirror as like a little one-sided mm -hmm. glass kind of thing yeah okay i like that yeah okay the what did you say the 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 mirror of mcdone 
Yeah. Sort of like a reference to McDonald's, that being like the mirror of McDonald, which would no, be no, probably copyright infringing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's great. The, the, the arch, it's just two arches as well. So, uh, mm -hmm. no, that's too much. Um, I like this. This is really good. Oh, and just like McDonald, it can franchise. If you smash the mirror, maybe like one of the consequences is that like you, you get rid of it, but then the, the little fragments find their way all over. And then it becomes this sort of this widespread issue where like, instead of just one person now you've got like Ooh. people like oh this is like a bit of mirror that i found but i just can't stop i'm gonna put it on my wall and frame it because it's got that nice bougie sort of ooh look yeah but then it's still got that enchantment it's still feeding off of people there's just lots more of it now and it's subtle enough that no one really recognizes it as a magical thing but they just say like, you know i just feel mm -hmm. good when i look at it oh that's great i just okay. think i just it really completes the room it just complements what's going on i like <laughs> it yeah that insipid uh, evil interaction. Oh, yeah. wonderful. <laughs> the mirror of McDonald, it's it's done. Um, thanks for that. That's awesome. And and um, this is wrapping up the episode now. Um, where would you like people to find you on online? So I'm Brian. I use he him pronouns. I run Dungeons on a Dime. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Dungeons on a Dime. Uh, if you go to my link tree, that little kind of like pathway onto other stuff, it's uh, linktr.ee forward slash DOAD. That'll take you to all of the relevant stuff that I've got going on. So right now the Vice and Virtue Kickstarter, which has got like four or five days left. Um, and uh, if I'm running stuff in the future, I've got stuff planned for like Zine Quest in February. So that'll be on there as well when it's ready. And there's all sorts of other stuff going on. So Dungeons on a Dime or like Twitter and Instagram and linktr.ee forward slash DOAD linktree for uh, uh, all of the stuff that's happening right now. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And and yeah, as I said before, that'll all be in the show notes as well for an easy click away. Um, thanks so much, Brian. It's been really nice chatting and hearing about your work. This has been super chill. Thank you for having me along. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Slow Quest podcast. Um, you can find the item we made as an article on my Patreon for free. Um, there's a whole bunch of other cool stuff going up there. There's maps, there's encounters, adventures, some new tokens I'm making, um, a whole bunch of cool stuff. And also, I'm running a Kickstarter right now for Sticker Hero, which is a, a way to make little portraits of your characters using stickers. Um, so please check that out at slowquest.com forward slash kickstarter. Um, and yeah, thanks and see you next time uh, on the Slowquest podcast. <laughs>